Hello everybody, Jordan here, the PH is silent, and in this episode of the Saturday Morning D&D Show, we talk about using monsters to their best potential, as well as answering some questions from viewers about drawing and stowing weapons during combat. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Saturday Morning D&D Show. My name is Jordan, with a silent PH in the middle, and I am joined always by my wonderful co-host, Sir Lucian, over at Sir Lucian Gaming. Say hello, sir. Hello, everybody. I can see all kinds of cool people in the chat. Oakage, yeah, Skull Dixon, Skull Dixon Lex. Lex Mandrake, awesome, Cyberwolf, and OU Cag. That's awesome. Yeah. So welcome, guys. Welcome. Thank you for chatting with us. Thank you for joining us live. Uh, if you are listening to this on YouTube or podcast format, we record live every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific time over on Twitch TV slash Sir Lucian Gaming. So come hang out with us. We would love to see you. Um, and this is a show about Dungeons and Dragons and RPGs in general, and we talk a bunch about, uh, all of that kind of stuff, so that is what we are going to talk about today. Um, you, Mr. Lucian, were gone for most of the week, so you don't have a lot of RPG stuff to talk about, but we'll, we'll see what we can dig up. <laughs> yeah. I'll have to make something up on the fly. <laughs> um, well, first of all, and I don't know if you took this, but Wizards of the Coast released a survey about Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. And they released this survey earlier, or maybe like last year or something. Uh, maybe it was two years ago. Just kind of be like, how is 5th Edition doing? And this is another one where it's like, well, how do you feel about 5th Edition? What needs to be changed? What classes do you like? What classes seem fun and balanced? And what, what are like weak and poor or just not fun to play? Uh, did you end up taking the quiz at all, or quiz, the yep. survey? Yep, this is the second one, the second time this, um, like you said, almost this year, I think. And uh, I always like to give my feedback and just kind of give them really honest answers as I can. Sometimes they're hard because, like, when you start asking about um, classes that maybe I don't like, I can't find classes I don't like. There's always something cool about one of them, but I do want to give them honest feedback too like i want them because they really want to be able to improve things you can't just say everything's great and you know then they don't have anything to work on yeah so. yeah um yeah. i i went through but i found um kind of a not an another issue is that i haven't played a lot of these classes like i've read about them and i have opinions about like barbarians and things like that but i've never actually played a barbarian so it was kind of this interesting uh dynamic between like I want to give them positive or negative feedback and I kind of feel like I know how this is played, but do I honestly know how this is played? Cause I haven't actually like done that yet. So the classes that I have played like cleric and wizard and a bunch of others, um, I kind of have more, I don't know, more understanding about that. Uh, so I wish there was a section that I could just be like, I haven't played this, um, good or bad. It could be whatever. I just want to like tell you that I haven't played this. And so I don't know. Um, lots of, Lots of interesting feedback on whether, like, how much D&D you play, which I thought was interesting. They want to know if you play weekly, monthly, bi-week, bi-monthly, um, or, like, more than, more than, uh, uh, more than once a week is kind of interesting, um, which I was like, who plays more than once a week? And then I was kind of looking at myself, and I'm like, oh, well, it's, it's not the same campaign, but I do have, like, three games running right now. So, of course, I'm playing more than once a week uh, because I'm addicted to the Dungeons & Dragons. Um, but I was going to ask you, how satisfied are you with Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition so far? Because surveys like this make me think that they're either going to tweak it in the future or they're prepping for a 6th edition. 
like they're gonna you know the next edition of D D, they want to nip all of the problems early yeah yeah to answer the first question definitely i'm enjoying fifth edition i feel like it's one of the best editions i've played i feel like i can get my head around any of the concepts and teach it to other new people to play it and it's enjoyable to somebody who's brand new it, it doesn't require you to be playing for many years to have fun with this edition you can come at it right from the get-go which i think is very important and it's not that that's a perfect system by any means but it's it's really good to go ahead and build the stories you want to build it has enough of the support around it if you don't have a, a your imagination is not kicking off you can go find some adventures and you can go find some stuff to play the combat feels pretty smooth um, especially early on i think later in the game is where it feels like it gets broken a little bit but most people don't even get to that point anyway so it's not like they're spending long amounts of time mm -hmm. in that upper area where everything kind of breaks off I think the one thing that I always try to type on these surveys that I try to get across to them is the only thing I wish had a, a more impact was the magic item system allowed for, for characters to have a few more magic items, but that didn't break the whole game. If, you know, if everybody's running around with two or three, just to give a little bit more of that fantastical feel, because it feels like, their character classes are so powerful and so good at doing everything that you don't really need any of the plus one this or plus two that to do anything because you've got all of that. So, but I like the idea of giving out, you know, like Sword of the Wind, even if it's a name thing that just does one little thing, like it shoots off a gust of wind once per day or something, or all these different things, like the the nine tail whip that we gave to your cleric. Yeah. You know, all these little things to allow the character to be slightly different, slightly unique, and, and a little bit more fantastical, like you would read in a book. Like most of the fantasy books we read, there's a lot of cool stuff in it that they'll have some kind of cool legendary item or or handed down heirloom that eventually turns into some great thing artifact that they're going to use to help do stuff. And you want to be able to give that to your players, but it's hard to do in this system without just blowing it out of the water as far as CR ratings and, and um, trying to keep things balanced. But I'm still struggling with the big, in my own mind, this isn't on them, but in my own mind of, should I be only making balanced encounters for my groups? Or should I just be looking at it from a narrative standpoint, whether it's balanced or not, and then just see what happens type thing? But that's a completely different question. And then the second question for me from the survey wise, I think um, I've definitely liked the system, but I do remember seeing a tweet earlier this week from Jeremy that said, this is the survey that we put out earlier this year, one very much like it. And this helped shape the book, uh, Xanathar's Guide to... Uh, everything. So it may be that they're getting ready for their new version, or it may be getting ready for a book that has a lot of new mechanics in it or introducing some new mechanics. And that book is almost set, but they're looking for feedback in case they didn't think of anything or they want to tweak some things or they want to put some new subclasses in to, to plug some holes um, or just to see what it is. And we know the new revisions of, you know, the player's handbook, the dungeon master's guide and all those are coming out with the new errata that got released. So all of those updates are going to be, fine-tuned and everything but it's funny that all this time they know like ranger i even said cyberwolf said it in chat there about ranger everybody seems to be this consensus that one of the subclasses of ranger has been broken since the beginning and we really haven't seen a fix to that or 
they haven't really seemed anxious to fix it either. Yeah, broken in the negative sense, not the overpowered sense. Like, and it's yeah. the Beastmaster Ranger is just not as effective as other classes. Um, but like, I I've made a Beastmaster Ranger and I've like run around with him, and it's yeah, like you're not dishing out as much damage as other stuff, but it's still fun, and you're still able to kind of hold your own. And so that's the, the that's why I think they haven't been like, okay, let's just revise the Ranger, and we'll updated player handbooks will have this revision in it. Um, we'll give it to the public for free because I think it's it's still viable, even though it's not like super powerful. I don't know, um, yeah. but with the ranger revisions in Xanathar's guide to everything, the ranger really got tweaked a lot. Like it was kind of more like a, um, a paladin where it's like, when you get to certain levels, you get certain spells that are just part or like clerics are the same way. Like your domain, you get certain spells at certain levels. And I thought that was interesting that they were like, let's, let's lean back on the things that we know worked to kind of go forward with the ranger. Uh, and that's the big one I think that people always bring up, I guess. And you obviously brought it up as well because we, yeah. we think about it is the, the poor ranger, but. Well, I think it comes down know. to the pet class mechanics because that's really one of the few that you could say is a pet class at all, which is always a popular class in any other game or any other MMO or video game. People love pet class style things and there's not really a lot of those in Dungeons and Dragons currently Beastmaster being one of them and it's this idea of I lose my actions to let my pet do things and it makes sense in math because if they they want you to only have one action per round until you get to third or fifth round mm -hmm. they can't give you a pet bear that can swipe tight twice and bite once and then you hit with your sword or shoot with your bow all of a sudden that's just too many actions for you early on so they take your action away, but that doesn't feel good narratively. And that doesn't feel good in the game when you're playing to say, my character is going to sit back and not do anything and give my action to my pet, which is going to do some really cool stuff. And then once you finally start to catch up to where you both can start doing things or there's enough action economy that everybody else in the group has caught up. So now you could have a couple of animal attacks and a couple of my attacks, because that'd be the same as the four attacks coming from the fighter. No big deal. But by then the pet, has dropped off because there's not really any mechanic necessarily, although they've talked about ways you could do this where it continues to stay with the party. So you don't, yeah. you don't get a level 20 bear that goes with you the whole time. And we saw it in like um, critical role, you know, with the bear, because at some point, just anything randomly AOE is doing so much damage. It kills anything. That's a normal creature. So like if you're going to be killing your players character, I think even in your campaign, there's a pet corgi, and I'm yeah. pretty sure if you as a DM kill that pet corgi nonchalantly, that group's not going to be happy with you because that's a part of their yeah. that's a member of their party. They don't want you just my you wife know, would kill me because <laughs> yeah. it's it's her corgi, and she's made it very clear that her character can die, but the dog cannot. The dog <laughs> has to escape in some way. Yeah. So as a DM, you don't want to necessarily target that because you want them to have that cool thing. So you got to be a little careful there too, but. I still think it provides plenty of, of gaming opportunity. I don't think it's necessarily so broken. You can't play it like you said. It maybe could be tweaked to be better. I wouldn't call it broken because you can make it work. Um, but maybe you have to work a little harder when you're using that one than you do maybe some of the other ones. But that's okay. Yeah. And you know, and, so. and now that I think about it, like we have tweaked it quite a bit. We've said that uh, the, the, the pet doesn't spend hit dice 
So on a short rest, it's just automatically back up to full HP. Um, if yeah. it goes down to zero, it doesn't die. It's just kind of like stabilized like other creatures so that we can go and we can heal it and then and then a short rest and it'll come back because it has a fraction of the hit points of a normal character at that level. Um, right. And then we've also, uh, I've given it magic items. Like we've said, no, it's a separate creature. It can have, so we've given it some like magic barding that allows it to um, like rush in and do extra attacks and have a plus one to it, its attacks and things like that to kind of make it more balanced and more fun for um, my player. So yeah, you're right. Like we've already, we've changed it. We've kind of made it better. We've done a bunch of things. So uh, it's, it's already been tweaked. So maybe it does need a little tweak. I really liked the Ranger that they put out for Unearthed Arcana that had um, all kinds of, uh, like it was more of a spirit animal that you would conjure, yeah. and then and then if it did die, you just had to spend like like eight hours maybe conjuring it again, so you could like bring back this spirit that would fight with you. Um, yeah, I really like that aspect. Be. Yeah, um, rather than like going back out into the woods and finding another animal, and then that didn't make any sense to me because I'm like, you find another animal, but you're not like attuned to it like you were before, like you didn't raise it from a pup. So now you have this animal that's listening to you and doing all these like combat maneuvers with you. But like, you're just kind of like, yeah, I went into the woods and found another bear. Um, it just kind of didn't work for me, but. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's that version of that creature is a tool. And so I can just throw tools away. I can just throw it to get killed and I'll just go get another one. But there's so few players that are going to play. Nobody that wants to play the Ranger pet relationship is that callous. If somebody picks that class, it's because they like animals. Yeah. And they like the relationship with animals. They don't look at his animals as like a farmer where, you know, I have 1,200 dairy cows and I'm, you know, going to kill them when I need to and have meat, which is all valid. <laughs> it's not saying they're wrong, but the farmers, that guy's probably, or, the, or woman's not picking the pet class because they see, they don't see the pet as a companion. They're picking a companion class. Whereas the way it was written, it was more like an extra tool, you know, yeah. like just go get another one, go get another wolf. Who cares how many wolves you've thrown into the, the combat and they've died? We'll just get more. There's always more in the woods. Yeah. I just don't feel that that that's the type of player that that draws to that. Yeah. Rangers are, they're going to protect their animal. Like the ranger that I have in my party, she's going to protect that dog to the point where she will sacrifice her own life to, to protect that dog. Um, yeah. And I think that's a lot of rangers. Um, a lot of Beastmaster Rangers, I should say. Yeah. Um, so yeah. go ahead. So I think it's good. I, I don't think it's broken. I, I love 5e. Like I've played AD&D. I played basic. I played, went back and we tried basic because we wanted to know what it played like. And I played third edition. I played second edition. I had not played fourth edition. It's the only one I don't have a good comparison to, but I know you do. And fifth feels like the best edition I've played, even though I was a big fan of third edition. I was one of those big, you know, 3E, 3.5 grognards that were out there. But fifth edition's definitely won me over. And it's, if I'm going to play D&D, it's the one I choose. I'll play the other ones or set the other one games up for nostalgia stake, but I don't want to run a long campaign. And if I'm going to run a long campaign, 5E is what I'm going to do it with. Yeah, I think we were even talking about having me run a, fourth edition game for you, which could be a lot yeah, of fun. I, <laughs> I need to be able to have that experience of knowing. So I'm not just, you know, just making stuff up. I want to know the experience of fourth edition, the, the goods and the bads and everything that went yeah. with it. 
Um, and then in other D and D news, uh, I don't know if you guys read Dragon Plus magazine, but like they came out with a new book, and I always skim it. Um, I never read it cover to cover, but I always skim through it. And they had some interesting articles in it right now, which are um, using magic cards as D and D items, which just made me think of like being inspired to run a game. Like what what inspires you to uh, craft the story that you want to craft. Um, and there is a YouTuber out there who I really enjoy named Matt from a fistful of dice. And yeah. he has a video that he did. And this was a while ago. So you can search his YouTube channel. I don't have a link for it, but, um, where he opened a pack of magic cards and then laid them out, read the like text about them and all this stuff. And then crafted a one shot based on the magic cards that he pulled. And I thought that was really interesting. And this is kind of the same thing. Like, can you use this artifact that artifact card in Magic the Gathering and kind of tweak it into your um, D&D game as an item in your D&D game? And you absolutely can. Uh, and so, like, as Dungeon Masters, we just get inspired everywhere. And so it's kind of uh, cool. But Wizards of the Coast obviously is, like, nurturing that, hey, with Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons can be really good friends. Like, we should look at ways that they can be really good friends. And so uh, they had a whole article on on not necessarily taking a card verbatim and transferring it into your game, but taking a card and the idea of that card. Like, what is what is this artifact? What does this armor do? And how can I transfer that into my game? Yeah, that's and that's what Ravnica, you know, Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica and the idea of bringing this in, or even some of the other supplements that they put out where they talked about using some of the Magic the Gathering universe in your Dungeons and Dragons. That was kind of the route I was coming from and where my excitement for this whole thing is, is because I would look at those cards and my brain would immediately start thinking about either cool adventures that would involve them, parties going out looking for that or being asked to go find it for somebody or they getting something like this that's a D&D branded version of that for their character or fighting these enemies that might be on the card or these these abilities that they might not have ever seen before these their bad guys are using against them there's so much direct inspiration that you can draw from even randomly shuffling the cards take all the land out for a second shuffle all the cards and then lay like five of them down and you can just sit there and look at that and come up with a cool adventure from those cards because of the text that's on them, the artwork evokes a certain thing, and then just looking at how the play mechanics of the card is, but then reimagining that in a, in a Dungeons & Dragons mm-hmm. version. And there's so much to it. Like, like you said, Dungeon Masters will take inspiration from many things. We'll watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and we'll get inspiration from that. Or we'll watch a sci-fi show and get inspiration from that. But that's like more kind of... Um, reading into it this is like on the point on the nose type of inspiration it's like oh this is a really cool sorcerer that i'd never even heard of and it's on this card and it talks about these sorcerers come from the land of sand and they do this thing and they do this thing and that that's just like immediate inspiration that you can throw into a game that's going to surprise your care your players because that's always what we're doing right yeah we always have these players who get used to these games they read all the books the adventures, they start to feel like they know what's going on and they know what an ogre is and they know what the goblins are and they know what these kobolds are. And then you throw them that softball or that curveball, that that slow up pitch all of a sudden that says, oh, wait a minute. What was that? Where did yeah. that come from? What is this thing? And that's that's the fun of the being the dungeon masters, throwing that kind of twist at them. Yeah, like uh, uh, everybody knows that trolls need fire to be destroyed, but then all of a sudden you throw... 
um, this is an ice troll that is immune to fire and they have to figure out, well, like what, what's an ice troll's weakness. Um, and maybe that was a magic, the gathering card, or just, you were, you know, thinking about, you were watching star, star Wars on planet Hoth and you were thinking, Hey, I want ice trolls. Yeah. Or even just like you said, turning mechanics into, so like if you had something that was like a first strike ability, Mm -hmm. which usually means in the magic, the gathering game is that that creature always does its damage before you do. So now imagine doing something similar in that. So your fighter attacks a creature and you narrate this way, how it, yes, your hit hits. Yes. Your great sword sinks in, but it damaged you just before you did that for roll. Oh, five points of damage mm -hmm. by doing this thing. And you come up with a, a narratively cool reason why every time you attack this thing, it damages you back mm -hmm. right at the same time. Now that's a whole different fight from, you know, now do I try to yeah. take it at range? Do I back off? Is this not the, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that go on tactically that are different and it's something they just wouldn't even see. Yeah. So I think there's so much inspiration. There's so many cards and the artwork is evocative. It's a fantasy magical world. We're already playing in a fantasy magical world. Why wouldn't we use like that stuff for inspiration? So I'm super excited about, you know, Guildmaster's Guide for Ravnica. I'm super excited for, the new card system that's out as far as the, or the new expansion for uh, Magic the Gathering, because I just want to go get a couple pack of cards and do exactly what you just talked about, which just have them and use them for inspiration to then drop stuff into my game. Yeah, make a really good video, actually, if you're if you're thinking about yeah. that. Like, go go buy a, a booster pack and then make a make an adventure from that, and that that sounds awesome. That sounds cool. I think I'll do that, and then we can stream the game online. It'll be fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, also, uh, a book that has been on my radar and probably on your guys' as well is this uh, Dungeons & Dragons Art and Arcana of Visual History. Um, and that comes out at the end of the month on October 26th, I think, um, and which is two days after my birthday. So make sure you guys all tweet me on my birthday and say happy birthday. Cause that would be awesome. But, uh, I'm really excited for this book. It's an illustrated guide to the history and evolution of the beloved role-playing game told through paintings, sketches, illustrations, um, and all of the visuals that were behind the creation of Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. So it's this, it's this, I don't know table book a coffee table book that's just kind of a, a visual art to dungeons and dragons but the art was so important to the evolution of DD. &D, i feel that this is just going to be a really interesting book for those who are are fans like myself and so i'm really curious about that um and they had a little article about that in dragon magazine as well uh and it should be really cool i'm super excited for it i think i'm going to pre-order it today and hopefully have it show up um a couple couple days after that maybe maybe it'll be um in barnes and noble or something and i can go pick up a physical copy rather than uh trying to do it through amazon but yeah because the artwork is amazing that's the over the years there's been great artists that mm -hmm. have worked with this and they brought them together in these great and sometimes you only see it as part of like the the front cover of a book so it has all the wording and the stuff on it or it might have only a piece of it that they used on a page whereas a lot of times in the art books you get the full piece of artwork that was um contributed so you may see more details that you yeah. hadn't seen before which is really cool or the scene is much bigger than you realize like that big red dragon sitting over the the mound of gold and the the fighter with the sword out ready to fight it that's a much bigger scene than what shows up on the 
the front of the the box set. There was more that was actually contributed to that. So it adds more to that and getting these type of books where they go back and they really revitalize mm-hmm. this artwork and give us a chance to have it is great. I want to put it up on my walls. We were talking about that just before the show started. I got my walls painted. So now it's time to start looking for the artwork to put up and have over my shoulder and stuff. And that's going to be a big inspiration for me to take a look at that book and just say, Oh, that that's kind of what I would like to have over there. This is what I'd like to have up over there. And and maybe I can get some of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, man, I need to get, I need to adjust my background as well. Cause it's like, there's, there's cords and a bookshelf and things like that. I look terrible. Um, but I do have my uh, Harry Potter wand in the background, so that's always fun. Uh, yeah, so really excited for that book. Should be really awesome. Um, so I guess Lucian, wh- what did you do in games this week? What's happening with your life? <laughs> yeah, so I was I was out. Work had me doing a user conference down in Florida, and if anybody had been watching the news, um, the hurricane came through oh, Florida. Yeah. But we were in Orlando, which was off to uh, the the east of where it happened so all we we did get like rainy clouds and rain kind of storms and stuff but not too bad but it was the whole time i was there it was barely sunny um it was always hot it was weird to be raining dark um clouds and everything but then still be like 88 degrees or 89 degrees with 95 percent humidity so it wasn't great to be there or outside but we were in a conference area and we were doing stuff with clients the whole week long so dnd wise you might think well i didn't really get to do too much but here is the one thing I, I thought i would bring up for this show also just before i went to that right after our show la- uh, last saturday i went to a dinner party um for a friend of mine who had just gotten married and they, had, they did a reception and even there at a party of friends and stuff or, or old acquaintances i hadn't seen for many years the conversation turned at some point to, hey, what have you been doing? And I, hey, I'm running Dungeons and Dragons games and I'm doing this stuff. And all of a sudden I use those opportunities to start recruiting more players for my game <laughs> or talking people into, hey, you should play Dungeons and Dragons if you haven't played it in a while. And they're all like, yeah, it's been like years since I played. I'm like, oh, you should really get to it because it's in a really good spot right now. And there's a lot of stuff going on and, and there's lots of ways to play, not just you know having to find a way in your schedule to to meet up at somebody's house for five or six hours or 10 hours like we used to do in college or when you were kids, but it could be like two or three hours on a work night using online in some way or a virtual tabletop that's gotten really good. So I was able to really talk to a lot of people who maybe have fallen out of the hobby or hadn't even tried it yet and said, oh, that'd be interesting. And I might be running games for those people. So I think the, the one kind of, um, what was the word for, um, moral of the story, I guess, is is where I was going with that analogy, was that if you find yourself in a place where you're not going to be able to play your normal games because you're on vacation, you're on a work trip, you're on a family outing or something, and and you're kind of bummed, like, oh, I don't get to play my Dungeons & Dragons, still talk about it, still wear your shirt that has little kind of hidden indicators that you play Dungeons & Dragons, because you'll catch the eye of those people who remember it from the past, and they'll go like, they'll ask you, be like, wait a minute, is that Dungeons and Dragons? And that gives you your opening to jump in and say, yeah, I've been playing a bunch. How about you? And they're like, no, I haven't played at all. And I'm like, oh, you should, you should come play with us. So it's this opportunity to refresh your community of possible players or just encourage people to say, hey, if your schedule can't meet mine, there's still lots of people out there to play. You should jump back in the hobby again and really kind of grow the hobby and grow your circle of friends who are playing Dungeons and Dragons because it's okay to play it now. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to pretend <laughs> you don't. It's like, it's okay to be like, yeah, we play on Friday nights and we play for a couple hours and it's fun. We have great stories. 
No, it's really uh, awesome. Also, just how many people are interested in D&D right now. And I have another, I have a story similar to that is, so I'm in a play right now and we were backstage and we were just talking and one of the um, actors in the play was saying that he's going to be in a Starfinder game uh, the the upcoming weekend. And so a bunch of these, our makeup girls were just like, well, what's Starfinder? And I was like, oh, it's like, a, it's a role-playing game. It's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons. And they're like, oh, my, my boyfriend plays Dungeons and Dragons. I've always wanted to play, but I haven't found a group yet. And so then I'm like, let me talk to you about Dungeons and Dragons. So we ended up chatting and like all this stuff. And I asked him like what kind of characters they were interested in. And, and they were like, I don't really know, but like, I know that I, I, I like this idea of just like hanging out with my friends and, and telling stories and like rolling dice. It seems really fun. And I was like, no, it's, it's completely fun. And so we were talking about that. And then he was really excited for his uh, Starfinder game and then yet another actress walked in and she's like what are you guys talking about and we're like Dungeons and Dragons and she's like I've been wanting to play Dungeons and Dragons so uh, it's it's easier now to find a group than you would think because a lot of people are interested in it but they just don't they haven't taken that last step they need you to be like I will run a game for you and then they will come over to your house eat your cookies and drink your beer and play Dungeons and Dragons so <laughs> yeah and become great friends and yeah. have good stories and it's like sometimes it feels like feast or famine so i know there's a lot of you out there that'll say i can't find a group and i've been in that slump too two it was about 3 years ago now that that's the slump i was in i was looking all over the place i couldn't find anybody that wanted to play I couldn't find a group to join and it just felt like maybe the hobby wasn't really that exciting and then I found just a couple people and then more. And then all of a sudden now I'm finding people everywhere I go. So just hang in there, hang in through the drought. If you're having a drought of you can't find a game um, contact, you can come play Dungeons and Dragons with me. If you ever can't find a game, there's a way for you to play Dungeons and Dragons at least every week or once every month or something like that. Um, I'll run a game because I don't want anybody not to have a game that can't at least get one. I can't promise a campaign that's going to run for five or six years, but I can promise getting you in a game at least somewhere, somehow, um, so that people can play. So you can definitely come over and play in the Revenar uh, campaign and have some fun. But that was what's exciting because it's just this idea of talking about our hobby openly, talking about our hobby with people that are excited about it, or even new people who've heard about it but haven't got in it yet. That's my favorite part of this is getting new people who've never tried it before and giving them a great experience to say, yeah. this is what it's like. This is how fun you're going to have. Go out there and find more experiences, even if it's not with me, but at least I started it and you can go out there and keep finding all kinds of cool stuff to be a part of. Yep. It's so that was my D and D. That was it. That was like I, <laughs> is I you... turned non D and D into D and D some way, but that was it. <laughs> That's fun. Um, well, geez, the, I played a couple games, which is Yay. exciting. And then I'm also prepping, them. uh, kids on bikes. So we can talk about that too. But, uh, my Sunday game, I wanted to talk about getting as a dungeon master, getting tripped up with monsters, because this is happening to me. Um, the more high level monsters I tend to run, the more abilities they have. And the more I'm forgetting that they have set abilities, uh, case in point, they fought a three skulled uh zombie lord recently um he's got three heads on his on his shoulders and uh my monk tried to stun him and i didn't read the, sh the text thoroughly enough that he's immune to stun so i allowed him to be stunned for a couple rounds until we figured out that he couldn't be stunned we tried to like retroactively give him some hit points but at that point the fight was kind of over and so i was like okay i i feel like i failed as a dungeon master because i threw this monster at you but i didn't play him to his full potential 
Um, recently, my players are in this inverted pyramid. They're still going down. This is like the never ending pyramid that I talk about on our show. Um, big mega dungeon that I created. So it's going to take them a while to get through this. And we play like twice a month, maybe, uh, on average. So it's going to take a while. Uh, but they fought a mummy and this was the legendary monster. It's got legendary actions and all this other stuff. Well, the last time I ran a monster that had legendary actions, I totally forgot to incorporate its legendary actions. So this time I was very focused on it doing its legendary actions. Um, it got to about a fourth of its HP and I realized I haven't cast a single spell. Like this guy has, um, not only does he has his legendary actions that I was manipulating, but he has um, a full gamut of awesome spells. And I wasn't utilizing any of those. And again, that time the fight was almost over. And so I was like, okay, well now the fight's kind of done. I failed to use this monster. So Lucian, Twitch chat, what do you guys do to remember all of the abilities your monster has? Because as a player, you're leveling with your character. You kind of figure out what they can do and what they can't do. But as a dungeon master, you're like, here's a new monster. And in my case, it's a monster I haven't looked at a long, for a long time because I don't know which path they're going to take. And so it was like, oh, this is the room with the mummy. I will open up the mummy. What can the mummy do? And I don't like being like, let's take 10 minutes so Jordan can read over this and fully understand. Like, I like to just keep the game moving, so. Yeah, and I think um, one thing to point out is that you're now playing a little bit higher level of a game. Yeah. So I think you guys are at 10 or 11th level. And yeah. now the things you're selecting to send at them that are cool or part of your dungeon have a lot more mechanics to them than any of the stuff you've dealt with between one and like seven or one and eight where you can kind of generally take a quick look at it and you're ready to go. I had the same thing with, I would played an Oni that has a lot of cool, if not just straight combat abilities, all of a sudden they have a lot of different abilities or a shaman priest that was like a, the, the orc shaman. And you're trying to figure out how to play them effectively, but they have a big list of spells. So now what spell yeah. do I do in what order? And now I've got to keep track of which ones are concentration and which ones are not. Yeah. And, all the stuff that's going on, plus run the battle, right? Run the narrative, run everything else that's going on. I have find it kind of hard. On the bigger battles with the bigger creatures that I want to make sure I get right, like I ran a mana core not too long ago, but still not even 10th level character yet. So it gets worse as you go higher, for sure. I, I don't want to take that away. I think there's this point before the game starts that I spend about 30 minutes looking at that, that one big creature and imagining what order should things happen in? Not that it will, but at least if I have this idea of players come in the room, fight ensues, what thing is the first thing that this would do? What is what is its motivation? Is it trying to escape? Is it trying to delay? Is it trying to kill them? What is its target? And then I try to play the abilities off on its motivation versus just trying to know what the best combination of abilities it is because i think if i know what its motivation is right away it helps me decide the right ability so if its motivation is it wants to escape um then i'm going to play those things that are escape like or if it's like it wants to go after the weak casters first then i'm going to use those type of items to go after their casters first and just let the group try to um, reside and we did a mummy in one of our other campaigns which um, was super fun character it's a really fun monster to, yeah to throw at from one of the undead sides that you don't get too often. 
And there is a lot of abilities there that you're trying to keep track of. So for me, it's I got to have enough time before the game starts to look at that creature. Maybe it's because I'm sitting down and eating dinner just before the game's going to start. Or it's that little area where instead of prepping a map or instead of prepping something else or where the storyline's going, my prep is look at that creature, character, whatever it is, and think about for at least 10 to 15 minutes what I would do if that was my character and how would I fight back and how would I... Um, attack these things. And what is its motivation? Because it can't just be they're in a room with a mummy and now you're just looking at abilities. What does the mummy want to do? What does the mummy want to accomplish? What is it supposed to do? What is it being compelled to do? What is it going to do? Those kinds of things I, I think will help you pick the right abilities. But if you forget the legendary action, you forget the legendary <laughs> action, right? There's not much you can do. <laughs> yeah. No, and it, I don't know. I was just... I was really excited for that fight, and then it uh, they they mopped it up a lot quicker than I thought, and I think and it was one hundred percent because I wasn't casting any spells. I was so focused on him doing his gaze attacks and his like actual physical attack that he slashes with, and utilizing all of these legendary actions that he has. That I was like, you know, on his turn he should have legendary actioned, swiped at somebody, or gazed attack, and then on his physical turn he should have cast harm or like uh i can't think of the spells off the top of my head right now but like he's got a whole slew of like necrotic spells that i could have utilized yeah um and so i don't know live and learn i guess so next time i'll be like okay jordan you focus on the legendary actions you you got that really good now we need to remember that they can cast spells and so you have to do x y and z and i've got a couple of other really tough monsters coming up through that dungeon so uh i'll have to remember that as they are exploring so you'll have to tell us and then we can give you pointers before you go to that session well on how okay you, think you should play it. <laughs> so the good thing about this pyramid is as they go down the rooms get smaller and the paths that my players can take get less and less divergent so they're able to just be like kind of funneled into a, a specific fight that i'm i'm planning um so yeah i'll have to bring that up next time or when they get there and be like okay guys i think they're gonna fight this um slash i don't know if i can do that because one or two of my players like to listen to the show occasionally yeah, so yeah <laughs> might have to be a retroactive thing or i'll just call up lucian and i'm like lucian what do i do yeah. he's like oh, i don't know let's prep um so that was an interesting kind of like i don't know not interesting but like it was a dilemma that i was having um well and, one other thing too oh, that too some supplements do a better job of giving you descriptions on how to play a character than others so sometimes like you go through the monster manual and it's stats abilities and a small blurb about it and it moves on whereas like sometimes when you got into volos and they really took a deep dive into you know giants or they took a deep dive into something else dragons or whatever you get a better feel so if you can find those type of supplements that really dive into the creature that you're going to be using those can help give you a better idea how to use the creature than just i found a stat block out on the internet somewhere and I'm going to try to throw that in because you don't want just a collection of stats and abilities. What you really want is this, the flavor text to how does this creature play or what does it do? What is it like to do? What is it, How am I supposed to think about this creature when it plays? Is it very aggressive? Is it very berserker-like? Is it very calculating? Is it very, you know, trying to throw them off their game? Um, those kinds of things. And then then you can play it no matter how they beat it. At least you feel like you're playing the, the thing the way it was supposed to be played because you you had that knowledge. So I, I always try, if I can, 
go out there and find something that's a little bit more deeper about how to play a good giant, you know, how to play yeah. a good dragon or how to play a good, you know, whatever creature might um, approximate what you're about to have them do. Tome of Beasts is actually really good about that. Um, right. A lot of the monsters in Tome of Beasts have motivations attached to them in their in their description text. So that's a yeah. excellent think, supplement uh, that's actually really expensive right now on Amazon because Creature Codex came out and everyone's like, well, I want to grab the Tome of Beasts book and it's not now it's supply and demand. And so the book went up from like, I think it was $40 on Amazon to like 110 now because people nice. can't find copies of it. So yeah, I'm hoping that the, the strongholds and followers from Matt Colville, he's been talking about he created a bunch of creatures that were things that you could summon and call to help you fight in your wars or whatever, because you have all this stuff going on. And so he's making some really cool things. And I'm hoping he does that where he gives you some, some insight in, you know, how to think about playing this creature, how this creature will fight, how this creature should react. And cause he's got a really good imagination about thinking of that. Cause he's always trying to find ways to like me and you will do those things where you want your kobolds to be played different than everybody else's kobolds. Or you, there's a better way to play smart goblins or, Orcs can be played differently or ogres can be played differently if you just tweak your mindset around how you're going to play them. Um, so I'm hoping he puts a lot of that stuff in his book, which we should be seeing the PDF maybe this month, maybe at the beginning yeah. of next month. It's getting really close. Yeah, that'll be exciting when that comes out. I know uh, one of my Hot Springs Island players, he's all ready to incorporate a bunch of Matt's uh, or strongholds and followers into his own game. He's really excited for that. So yeah, it's going straight into our Revenar campaign. So when our characters start hitting that 10th, 11th level, once we get them up there, those options from that book are going to be available for those players to play. So it's going to be really cool to see who's building wizards towers or forts mm -hmm. or keeps and whatever. So it's going to be an interesting thing to do. I can't wait for it. It's going to be super fun. Cool. Um, and then my hot springs Island game, they got captured um, last time on Hot Springs Island, they were captured by salamanders and taken to um, a, a mine where they were basically forced to mine for them. They were like, you're going to be our slaves now. You're going to mine. They got shackled to the floor um, and given a pickaxe and they were put in a pit that was 30 feet down with a giant red crystal and they were supposed to get this crystal out intact. And so they're kind of like mining out this giant crystal. Um, and that's what they said is they were like, don't damage the crystal. You're in trouble. Well, naturally, they, my players want to escape. So uh, they, they first of all noticed that because of the crystal dust in the air, and it's a magical crystal dust, it causes you to become ethereal. And so as they're inhaling this dust, their shackles, and they're, they're not able to hold onto their pickaxes, and their shackles are kind of like melding out of their bodies. They're becoming incorporeal because of this red dust in the air. Um, but dwarves are not affected so one of my players was still shackled and could was not affected by this but the other two were so we had a kind of an interesting fight where they they started a scuffle at the bottom of the of the pit to force the guards to come down so that they could get a jump on the guards you know typical like hey you guys knock it off and kind of things like that um yeah. But then we had interesting mechanics where I was rolling behind the table to see if they were corporeal or incorporeal. Like, does this does this hit? Yeah, yeah, it hits your AC, but the spear actually goes right through you. Or you attack with your pickaxe, but the pickaxe goes right through the guy because you're becoming ethereal, like off and on because you're breathing in this dust. And so that was kind of a fun mechanic. They mopped that up, and then they instantly were like, "Well, we want to find our stuff." So they left and. Um, ran out to go find their their things they 
were clever. I showed them a map of the area that they're in. And I said, where do you want to go? And they're like, well, here looks like a place where they would store our stuff. And it was exactly where the stuff was stored. Nice. So long story short, they, it was an interesting fight because the, the sorceress was like, well, I don't have my, um, my staff anymore. So all of these material components that she needed to cast spells, she didn't have. So she was looking around like, can we find this? Can we find this? They, they ended up mining and I, I rolled, they rolled a really good survival check to find some mica so that she could cast shatter to try and break down this door so they could get their stuff. Shatter obviously causes a lot of noise. So there were reinforcements that showed up, but once they had some of their items, um, they couldn't like don their armor. That's not fast enough, but they could grab their weapons and they turn around and like attack with their weapons uh casted cast uh hold person on the main guy and since he was paralyzed they were able to just kind of wail on him and take it out so it was it was interesting and fun long story short they got away again my question for you is like i feel like this should have been harder and they kind of like breezed through like it was really scary them getting caught and then they were able to like break out of prison uh super quickly um i'm not sure how i should have handled this yeah, I think if they're clever, you just can't. There's nothing you can do about really good, clever players. I've That's got the true. same kind mm-hmm. of group that always thinks their way out of something that I didn't think their way out of, or I didn't. I thought it was going to be a little tougher for them, but they kind of walk through it. And it, if they're, I think reward their cleverness. You know, they're not being stubborn. They're at least trying to be mm-hmm. innovative. And if they're going to be innovative, then then I'm okay with them getting through an encounter. If they're just going to bull rush their way through the encounter and do nothing, you know, more than just swing the sword and it's easy, then I've def- then I feel like I definitely failed. Yeah. But if they got innovative and they got around some cool thing I set up or what I thought was going to happen, then I'm okay with it. I mean, it was funny because you kind of said in there too, that, um, I like that incorporeal part that adds, like you said, environmental effects adding to what would normally be a normal fight, but then changes it in some way is kind of a cool mechanic. And that's something they'll remember. And that's something they'll tell stories about, about how they were down there mining this thing. And, you know, that whole thing will pop up more than any, we were in the swamp and we hacked and slashed with some axes and swords, this other Mm -hmm. thing, which was a normal, pretty standard fight that had nothing else happen. So I think those are cool that, it sounds like the hot springs islands is really putting in some really key moments that they'll talk about, you know, at the dinner party years from yeah. now, which is going to be really fun. And really no, cool. there's crazy stuff in hot springs Island. Like there's all this different, um, plants and, and things that you can find. Some of them are just like, here's a pepper that's really spicy, but some of them are, and I'm making this up, but some of them are like, eat this pepper and you can breathe fire for 10 minutes. Like there, there's all this stuff to explore that there's nothing in the, in there to give a hint that any of this does this. It's all trial and error. Like, do you want to eat this and maybe die? Or do you want to eat this and become super powered for the next 10 minutes? Or if you eat this four times, now you're addicted and you're going to take all these detrimental effects if you stop eating it. Like it's really interesting. And case in point, the, the dust from, um, that crystal dust, like if you snort it, you become ethereal. But if you can habitually snort it, there's a chance that you could become permanently ethereal. So it's like you don't necessarily want to do this all the time. And Hot Springs Island is really cool like that. Um, Ultimately, my players cast disguise because two of them could cast disguise self. So they disguise themselves as salamanders and use the third one as like a prisoner they were taking somewhere and they escorted out. And they, they made some, you know, bluff checks and things like that. So they were able to get out. It's... 
it was really interesting. But yeah, I guess you're right. You need to reward clever players, but if they just hack and slash their way through that and you're not punishing them for just like basically becoming like gladiators and just taking out everything, not rewarding creativity, I guess. Because it's yeah. it's not as creative to just like, well, I'm just going to attack him because that's what my character does. He attacks things. Um, but if they're saying, I want to do intimidation checks, I want to do this, I want to, can I, can I sneak past this? Can I charisma my way through this? Uh, then rewarding those players is is a good idea. So yeah, you're right. Maybe I felt like it was too easy, but it was very memorable for them. So uh, maybe it was a good encounter overall. Yeah, and I was thinking like the other thing that popped in my mind when you're talking about like the shatter part. And then the other one, I have a party that has, I think three of the characters have um, the other spell that's just like that um, Thunder Wave. So yeah. their, they, their, their go-to strategy right now has been because they have three characters that have it, Thunder Wave, Thunder Wave, Thunder Wave, and they, they pat themselves on the back with how much damage they're doing. But I got to the point now where it happened once, and I thought, okay, <clears throat> you guys got your little thing. You got your plan. It was great. But now every time you hit those Thunder Waves, that's a clap of thunder throughout, and I make it loud. Like yeah. I make it like you keep firing them off and keep watching all the reinforcements that keep coming in because you can't, you're not just going to try to Thunder Wave your way through this whole you know area um, I want to start making them have to be a little bit more strategic, a little bit more tactical. And so I want to adjust or I want them to be fearful of what things they need to use at this time or what they don't have, the what they can't use at this moment. Like you said, where she didn't have her staff. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure I remember things like that when they run out of components or they run out of spell slots. And I want that. I try to keep a really good track of my character's spell slots because I want them to feel that fear and that anxiety and that pressure that they're down to their last slot or so and the fight's still going, the things are still happening and, and that adds it and ramps up that tension in the storyline. And, and then it makes it memorable. It's not that it's going to beat them. It's not that I'm trying to, you know, win. It's just that I want them to feel the pressure in the game because if they don't ever feel any pressure in the game, they won't stay interested in the game. If it gets too easy or, there's nothing really that stands out and you fought skeletons like seven times in a row, but because you're in the big skeleton, like you said, pyramid, and it makes sense that you'd fight skeletons that many times, but it's just kind of boring that we all run up, we hit skeletons, we move on to the next room, we hit skeletons. So you got to add yeah. things in that add pressure. You've got to add in environmental effects. You got to add in their plan all of a sudden doesn't work the way they want to. It's not that you do that to every one of their plans. Like I don't try to, outthink them on all their plans like i like to i like to let them have one or two plans that seem to go their way ish and then i like to really throw a monkey wrench in one of them you know just to really throw everything off and then you know just kind of give them that um sense of things are on the edge of control but anything could go wrong at a moment's notice yeah no that's good advice i like it keeps games interesting yeah um, and they love it so this was really cool. We got a tweet from, um, oh, I should have had yeah. it up and I don't have it up. From, I want to uh, say the Nige. The, the Nige? The Nige? The Nige. The Nige. Like Nigel, like short for Nigel, I bet. Um, and he asked us, he's like, hey, uh, if you get a chance, do you want to answer these questions that I have on the Saturday Morning D&D show slash podcast? And I was like, you know what? Yes. So if you would like to tweet us uh, questions or even if you have questions in chat, um, 
we're gonna ha- this is a new segment of the show called oh i wrote it out and everything a new segment of the show called how would you rule that so we're gonna have we're gonna occasionally do this and it's like how would you rule that um and his question was he had two questions they were kind of similar um well we'll do number one is switching weapons during combat number of actions etc like how do you handle switching weapons during combat and this really made me think because i don't handle that like a lot of my players don't switch weapons during combat and occasionally when they do i just let them like stash a sword and pull out a crossbow and fire it like i never really thought about doing it because my players aren't abusing it i guess it's not every turn that they're just like and i throw an axe and then i attack with a sword and then i throw another axe like they're they're very much like i'm gonna do this and then i'm gonna do that but how do you handle this lucian by the rules currently this is not one of the rules i switch and the reason that i think i go by the rules is because i'm playing a barbarian that is using uh the two weapon feet and in that feat, it talks about that uh, during a round, I have the opportunity to interact with two weapons, whereas the normal rule says you can you have one free action to interact with a weapon. Drawing a weapon is considered part of the attack, but you to interact like a change weapon, you get one free one per round mm-hmm. to do. So, so most of the time, that covers, like you said, what, what most things happen, you don't have to even rule on it. Where it only comes into effect is when you've got your two-weapon hand dealers or the person that's going from bow to sword and shield because all of a sudden you've got two items there that you're trying to change around. So I go by the rule. Each character has a free action and a... It's an action is for like using potions and stuff is not included in that free action by default. Mm -hmm. Now, I know some people will rule like using a potion might be a bonus action. I think that's how critical role does it. Um, Other people will put in you, maybe you get one free action, but I am sticking with the rules currently. It seems to be working in all my games, which is you get one free interaction to adjust weapons or equipment, one piece of equipment per round. And unless you're, you have a feat or a class feature that lets you do something different and potions are an action to use currently, which simulates the idea that you're, rifling through your backpack to get it because nobody holds their life-saving potion on their belt where it can be damaged in a fight. Right. Right. So it has to be somewhere couched inside your backpack in a safe space. And that we want to simulate the idea that you're going to get that to go ahead and use it. So that's how I'm currently ruling that. I think because you said you're doing it by the rules, but I don't think you're, you're following the rules exactly. Maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Because, Drawing or stowing a weapon is an object interaction, and you get one of those on your turn. So you can stow, like, let's use the bo- the bow and the and and the sword and shield. So I can stow the bow, and now I have no weapons in my hands, which means reactionary attacks I can't take because I have no weapons. On my next right. round, I can use my free action to draw my sword, and then I can attack with the sword. So right. it kind well, of works and, out where you're like, well, this round I want to put away a weapon and this round I want to take one out. Where it comes into play is there's that reaction attacks that could happen during that round that you currently don't have a weapon in your hand. And what I meant to say is what our players are doing is they drop what right. is ever in their hand. And they you don't can do that. Yeah. So if you're yeah. so if you're firing a bow, you could drop the bow and then draw it as your as your interaction object free action and then attack that That's one. That's how I rule it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not the stow part. Yeah, yeah. You got it. Um, which is just interesting because then you have like like weapons littered around on the floor or something. Well, and and I, they I, might move. Yeah, yeah. Or they might get damaged like fireballs yeah. or things like that. And so yeah. I don't know. 
Or uh, Thunder Wave could push it 10 feet away. There's a lot of stuff that could go on, but that's how I'm ruling them in the, in the campaign at the moment. So you could, you could rule this very by the book if you want to, but ultimately I think it comes down to if your players are abusing it. Are they abusing it somehow? And you want to be like, you know, actually you guys are really overpowered because you're switching from a great axe to daggers much too quickly or something like that. Um, or this, you know what, you've got a great axe and a, and a war hammer and you realize that this skeleton is resistant to slashing. So you're going to switch out your war hammer. Like if you're, if you're that kind of a player where you've like, I've got seven weapons on me ready for everybody's kind of weakness. Uh, then I would implement these rules because I think it makes sense. But otherwise, if your players just want to swap a weapon, because I don't know, for whatever, like, like my, my fighter is like, Hey, I, I didn't get within range. Can I fire my crossbow? And I'm like, sure. And then next round he pulls out his swords and he does sword damage. Like, I think even Mike Merle said in a tweet that it's like, it's really up to the dungeon master, how you want to handle this. We put the rules in because we needed to have rules about it, but like whatever functionality, uh, or not functionality, but whatever works for your table, have it work for your table. Yeah. And I see the Nige is actually in chat. So that's, oh, pretty that's great. Cool. So good to see you. And, and I, I say that again with, this is the way I do it in my campaign, but I definitely emphasize what Jordan has just said is that you need to pick what feels fun for your campaign. If you want fast path, uh, paced action and you don't want to bog it down with counting how many arrows have been used, swapping of weapons, using potions, you just want things to be going fast and that's the high pace you want, then it's totally cool to do that in your game as long as you're you're pretty consistent with it. Just don't go halfway through and then bring up to one of your players, well, wait a minute, you can't then, you know, pick up that third item because this whole time you've been letting them kind of get away with stuff willy nilly as far as that information. Mm -hmm. So just be consistent with how you want to do your game and judge what seems to be right for your game. I'm playing a very survivalist type campaign. Like we're counting down rations of water. We're counting down uh, food. And some people don't want to bog their game down with that. And I totally understand that. So mine is trying to lean. In fact, on mine, if you roll a natural one, you damage your weapon in my campaign. And if the creature that hits you rolls a natural 20, it damages your armor. So I'm throwing some things in that do bog my combat system down a tiny bit with some extra um, stuff to keep in mind. But that's just because it's right for my campaign. You need you need to figure out what's right for your campaign. Yours might need to be the, the faster pace and not worry so much about um, you know counting that stuff down. I don't think they can over abuse it too much, and you know unless even if somebody has four attacks and they want to use four different weapons for each one of those attacks, really does that matter in the long range of things, or yeah. is it just cooler to let them draw a sword, then draw an axe, then draw a spear, and then draw a dagger as if that's their cool super thing that they do and let them do it. You know, it's pretty fun. It doesn't, it's not really going to affect things. Yeah. Um, and then his second question on our new segment of how would you rule that is uh, using shields with armor and armor class. And he says, how do you decide when the shields plus two does and doesn't count? And I was a little confused about this because if you're proficient with shields, um, then you get a plus two if you're holding a shield. So I don't know what, what was your interpretation of this question? Uh, yeah, to me, I, I read the same thing. As long as you have that proficiency and you, you have it in your hand, a shield is in your hand, then I allow them to have the plus two to their AC, no matter what weapon was in their left hand. I don't think it, as long as it's a one handed weapon, 
Yeah. Yeah. Or even if they didn't, if they're holding a two-handed weapon, I don't think the the AC part goes away. Maybe that affects how that weapon attacks, but it doesn't have anything to do with you being more defensive or not. And I I have a little bit different of a, a mentality on this because I'm in a hobby where we dress up in armor and we fight for real with swords and shields and stuff. So I actually know what it's like to have a shield and how good it is. And I'm very conscious. And the, a lot of my players are in the same hobby I'm in. So we actually do reenactment of historical battles. And we all fight sword and shields together full speed, full contact, and that with our armor on. And we're all sword and shield proficient. We're all really good at it. So in our games, we're hyper-conscious of when the shield is doing stuff and somebody has it in their hand. They're really good about saying, my shield's in my hand and I'm doing this because that's just the style of players I have. So for me, that's about the only thing. He talks about maybe like he has a rapier or switching weapons. Like if you're going to switch, that's the thing. Because I think he wants to go from a bow right? You're shooting your bow, something gets close to you, but now I want to pull out my sword and shield. But technically I can't because it's only one action. So to me, pull out your shield first. You're going to be able to attack next round. The thing I wish they had though um, in the game, and it should be in there, is a shield punch. It shouldn't be big damage, but you should always be able to hit somebody with the edge of your shield as a blunt strike weapon. Yeah, anybody can do it, just as uh, I, I would think. Anybody oh, can okay. just you know ram it into somebody's face. Even if it's not as effective as stabbing your, your sword through their heart, it's still effective to have that thing hit somebody. Bludgeoning damage is a real thing, and, and especially against armor. Um, in fact, like people that wear chainmail, if you get hit by the edge of a shield and you're wearing chain, chain does nothing for that in reality. I will still break your ribs <laughs> doing that. Chain was meant to stop the points of arrows not and and the slashing of blades it was not meant to stop a hammer from hitting your bones and breaking them or the edge of a shield a wooden shield hitting you or breaking your bone that's what the padding underneath was for yeah uh and and from my perspective if you're using like a bow and arrow and it's a two-handed thing you can't have your shield with that with a two-handed weapon like that that's my interpretation of it so you would have minus two ac because of that until you used your free action to draw your shield. So now if they're by the rules, and I guess this is if we're going to get into the nitty gritty of like, where is their AC, then I would have to be like, well, now we have to follow the rules because we are getting into a situation where I don't know when you have this AC and when you don't. Um, It would be a free action to stow that bow. And then on your next turn, it would be a free action to equip your shield but you wouldn't have a weapon. So as, whenever they use that free action to equip their shield, that's when I would give them the plus two AC um, and not just be like, they turned their back and it hit the shield that's currently like mounted on their back. Like, no, you have to have it in your arm actively protecting you. So. And technically that you could get it down to one turn, I think, because you could say, drop my bow. Yes. Because something's coming at you. I use my free action to grab my shield and arm it. And then I could use an action to draw my sword or just an action Mm -hmm. to do something. But what I have to give something up, and I think you should have to give something up if you're switching that much equipment around. Yeah. Um, Sure, it it doesn't seem like that. If somebody knocks a dagger out of your hand, the next turn I can pull a different weapon and I can fight, but that's okay. But when we're talking about going from one two-handed use weapon to another, two hands are going to be used for whatever you're doing. There's got to be a, a disadvantage to that somewhere. And I think it's that you lose that one round. You better maneuver. 
you better pull your two things out, get your AC as high as you can. And then you can still do other things, intimidate, distract, uh, you know, shout out, look for clues, any of that kind of stuff. But that's your disadvantage from going from bow to then sword and shield. Yeah, and uh, it I, guess, I think the lesson to take away from this is like read the 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 paddle and just kind of be like, what makes sense for right there? Because um, someone in chat just said uh, that oh, it was Irony Golem said that um, if you had a shield on your back, it would help with arrows. And I was just thinking like if my players were prone and they were crawling with a shield on their back and there was a barrage of arrows. And they said to me, like, hey, can I have my plus two AC because I've got the shield on my back? I would be like, absolutely. Like, that makes sense in the context of that battle. And so a lot of this is just kind of read the battle and see how it feels, what feels correctly. Or give your DM a narrative reason why it would work. Don't overdo it. But if you have a true narrative reason why, hey, that just came from behind would my shield interfere at least some maybe i wouldn't give the full but i like that you went narrative with it i like that you're trying to that something's going on i might give you a partial bonus for mm-hmm. that um, just like i would give you a partial cover bonus if you give me a good reason why narratively it should be harder to hit you than just were two people standing 50 feet apart and shooting at each other or whatever yeah. it might be well, thank you so much for the question. Uh, that was yeah, some really good. good discussion. We've gone a little over time, so I think it's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, as always, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at Jordan with a silent PH in the middle. That's J-O-R-P-H-D-A-N. And Sir Lucian is over at Sir Lucian Gaming, and you can talk to us on Twitter. Um, we're both pretty active on Twitter, so you guys can message us, and we'll chat back and forth with you. Um, anything else, sir, before we, we fade away? I'm, I was going to try to remember to raid today, so I think we should go raid somebody. I'm going to try to find a channel. Anybody have any good suggestions? I think Cyberwolf would, just went to play a game. Did anybody catch where he was going to play a game? We should go raid his channel. He's uh, currently doing it. I just jumped onto Twitter. Other than that, make sure if you want to play in a game with me, yeah, you can with the uh, Seeking Revenor campaign. You can contact me through... Twitter, through email, through uh, Twitch, through YouTube, and tell me that you're interested, and I will send you the information that will get you started in joining our Seeking Revenue campaign, which starts up again this week. We're going to be running a bunch of games online, so keep an eye out for that. I've been slacking because of all the work. I'm looking for some D&D, and I'm just not finding it. How about uh, the Greyhawk channel? They're fun people. Yeah, let's do that then. So, I like them. So thank you guys so much for coming out with uh, for the Saturday morning D&D show and for catching us on podcasts and or YouTube. Uh, tell your friends because we love to have awesome people in chat. And thank you so much for coming out. Thank you for awesome questions as well. Yeah, uh, thanks, Nige. That was great. Um, we will see you guys uh, next week with another episode of the Saturday morning D&D show because next week's going to be awesome because I'm going to talk about my Kids on Bikes game, which I'm running tomorrow. So be sure Yay. to tune in for Kids on Bikes fun and see how panicked i am about running such a narrative heavily heavy game it's gonna be great sweet all right let's go do that rage and we are out see you later bye guys thank you so much our intro and outro music is 8-bit march by twin musicom licensed under creative commons check out their website at www.twinmusicom.org